Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we have got a special treat for you. Returning champion, previous guest to the show, Daniel Whiteson of Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe. We are so privileged to have Daniel join us again today. Daniel, say hi uh, and introduce yourself for anybody who wasn't around last time. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. Great to be back. Um, I'm Daniel Whiteson. I'm a professor of particle physics at UC Irvine down here in Southern California. And I'm also the co-host of the podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a podcast with my good friend and collaborator, Jorge Cham, in which we talk all about the craziness of the universe. We try to answer questions. We try to share the wonder and the mystery of the universe in a way that makes it accessible and hopefully a little bit fun. Well, we really appreciate you joining us today, uh, Daniel. So I, I wanted to invite you on to Stuff to Blow Your Mind today to talk about space. This is actually a subject uh, I've, I've wanted to tackle on the show for a while with uh, the unifying question of what is space? Why is there such a thing as the distance between the Earth and the sun or between an atomic nucleus and the electron that orbits it? Uh, because I think a lot of the time 
when we think about physical reality, we just immediately look past space to the things that occupy it. We, we assume space is a kind of given, a de facto canvas on which physics can be realized. But I wanted to think about space itself. What is it? How does it exist? Do we know anything about where it comes from and where it's going? So maybe the easiest way to start off today would be to, to get as simple as we can. So in simplest terms, in a sentence, if you could do it, how would a physicist define space? <laughs> wow, all of space in one sentence. That is a pretty tall order. You know, I'd have to say, uh, to be honest, I'd have to say we really have no idea what space is. I mean, I think it's wonderful that you're asking this question. It's the kind of question that it takes like a sort of maturity of science and philosophy to even understand why the question is interesting and important. You know, it's like, it's like we've been fish scientists for a thousand years swimming through this fluid and then only recently have realized that it's it's something fascinating, something to study, something that has properties, something can do weird things. And so it's a, it's a deep and important question, you know, and, and just to digress a tiny bit more, like it makes me wonder how many other crazy basic questions we aren't even asking because we don't realize how rich the topic is, you know? So I feel sort of privileged that we're at this moment in science when we can ask this question, what is space? And understand that it is an important question. All right, so I totally dodged your question there. Um, <laughs> but I could try to give a one-sentence answer if, if you'd like. Uh, sure, well, start simple and then we'll, and then we'll get more into the nuances here. All right, well, a simple answer to what is space is that, oh, man. I mean, I could try to... It I may be impossible. Um, I'd say a, the simplest description I could give for what space is, is something which has various properties we've discovered. It ha can contain quantum fields, it can expand, and it has relationships to other parts of space. And so that's more a description of like what we've what we've observed about space, it's not really an inherent understanding of what it is because we don't have that understanding. Well, maybe this brings me to a question I wanted to ask later on, but uh, if there is no good answer to this, uh, it can help ground us as we go forward. So I wanted to ask, is there such a thing as even a hypothetical physics without space? Does all physics assume space? And can we imagine say, a possible world that exists but does not contain space? Or is that just inconceivable? No, I think that all physics that we do assume space. Like all of our modern theories, the standard model and quantum field theory, they all operate in some space. And there are different kinds of theories that we have. And some of those make different assumptions for what that space is. Like quantum field theory, you write down what the space is in advance. You say, I'm going to assume space, you know, is three dimensions and extends in all, in all these directions. And then I'm going to talk about the fields that are in that space. Other theories like general relativity, space is a part of what you're sort of trying to get at. It's not like the backdrop. It's the thing you solve for you. say, if I have this configuration, then what does the space look like? But they all assume space. I mean, space gives you a relationship between stuff, right? It tells you this is here and this is not here. And in the end, all of our theories are trying to understand the world we live in and everything we live in has space. So it's pretty hard to grapple with uh, non-spatial theories or non-spatial physics. So yeah, I would say that uh, we need space. 
Okay, but so if we could come at it from the exact opposite angle, you think you, you couldn't really have a physics without space. Could you have a universe full of space with no matter or energy in it? Could space exist without any contents? Could space exist without any contents in it? Yeah, that is an awesome question. And it's fascinating because we have two theories of physics right now, quantum mechanics and general relativity. And they're both awesome achievements, staggering insights into the way the universe works. And they give different answers to this question, right? So general relativity um, is Einstein's theory. And he has a bunch of equations that say what the universe looked like, depending on what you put in it. And he has, and one of the, and it's really hard to solve. Like there's very few ways you can actually solve these equations. One of the very few ways you actually can get an answer out is what they call the vacuum solution. Like just say, assume there's nothing then what does the universe look like if there's nothing in it? All right, Einstein can solve that problem. Quantum field theory, though, quantum field theory says, hold on a second, um, space is filled with all these quantum fields and particles and matter and all the stuff that you make me and you are just like excited states of these fields. So when you look at an electron, it's not a particle, it's not a wave, it's a little ripple in some field, which is not in space, it's part of space. So if all these fields, you have the electron field, the electromagnetic field, all the fields associated with each of the forces, there's lots of them. We can talk about them later if you'd like. But some of them never relax completely. Some of them are, always have some energy in them. For example, the Higgs field. The Higgs field is in every part of space, and it's always got some built-in tension to it. And that means that there's energy in every part of space. So quantum field theory says, no, you can't have space without some energy in it. There's some inherent energy to space. Whereas general relativity says, I could totally imagine it. And we don't know which theory is the fundamental true theory of the universe, if either one. We can't seem to make them play together very well. And so this question really goes to the heart of like the nature of reality itself. It's fascinating. It's the kind of thing that in 500 years, physicists will know the answer to and look back at us and be like, oh man, those people didn't understand anything about the nature of the universe they were living in, right? What a bunch of cavemen and cavewomen, like they were such ignoramuses. So I love that idea about quantum field theory. And if I understand this right, you're saying that under the assumptions of quantum field theory, you could have a big block of space, and even if you were able to clear everything out of it, clear out all the hydrogen particles, clear out all the dust so there's no matter left in it, you'd still, you still really wouldn't have an empty void. Is that correct? That's right. Every unit of space comes with energy built in. It comes from the factory with energy already in it. And, um, and, and lots of those fields can't not, cannot relax. The Higgs field is one example, but many of these fields cannot relax all the way down to zero. And so it's impossible, according to these quantum theories, to have space with no energy density in it at all. And that mean, and that's stuff, right? All stuff is, is some kind of energy. Like the matter that makes it me and you, that's just a form of energy. So to say that the space has energy in it really means it's not empty. So what you're describing space as uh, really goes against a lot of our intuitions where, you know, I think the standard understanding of empty space, what's out there beyond Earth, you know, even if you could clear all the hydrogen and dust and everything out of it, is that it's just this empty relationship between two points. But you mentioned, of course, the uh, the idea that there are, you know, quantum fields that can be excited and uh, can give birth to particles and stuff. Well, I, I might be putting words in your mouth there. Is that correct, though? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. But. 
earlier you mentioned also that it has other properties. So it sounds like you're saying space really is a thing. It's almost like a substance of a kind. Yes, space is a goo, right? We first imagine space sort of as a place to hold our ideas, right? We're like, maybe when you think space and you're, and you're thinking of deep space, you imagine some like glowing X, Y, Z axes that use to like the backdrop on which maybe your calculations take place or your spaceship flies through or whatever, sort of, but they're like mental um, metrics we use to understand where things are. That's sort of the initial idea of space. But then it turns out that space can do things that are inconsistent with that, right? Like space can ripple. We've seen gravitational waves when black holes orbit each other and eventually collide or other things happen. They create these ripples in space itself. These ripples, they're space getting stretched and space getting con contracted, right? Squeezing and, and, and shrinking and then expanding again. They're very, they're very, very small, which is hot, why they were hard to discover. But yes, we've discovered that space can do things. So it can ripple, it can expand, right? We've talked about the expansion of the universe. The universe expanded in its first moments and it's continuing to expand. In addition, space can bend. Maybe the most familiar example is understanding gravity as distortions in space by having mass nearby. And, and so Space can do all of these things that nothingness cannot do, right? that a backdrop cannot do. You can't just think of space as like the theater of the universe. It's a weird dynamical thing in itself. Yeah, I think in general our listeners are going to be more familiar with the idea that space can can bend in accordance with general relativity. There's a big object, you know, and it creates curvature in, in space-time. It's a little bit harder to picture exactly what's happening with the first thing you mentioned with uh, the ripples through space-time. So that's something that would be like, that's like how we detected gravitational waves, right? Is that correct? Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. what, what exactly is happening when a ripple goes through space? Like, how do, how do you measure that? What, what is that in the moment? Right. Well, you know, a ripple through space is information propagating through the gravitational field. Something that's very important that came out of general relativity that we didn't have with Newton's gravity is the concept that information takes time to move gravitationally. Like if the sun disappeared, would we feel the sun's gravity instantly disappear or would it take a moment? Turns out Newton says it would go away instantly. Einstein says, no, you wouldn't even notice for eight minutes because the gravity from the sun would take, the information about the sun being gone would take eight minutes to get here gravitationally. And so that's propagation of information, right? And so a gravitational wave is a special form of that. Say you're familiar with the, the concept of like putting a mass and that deforms space. Well, imagine you put a mass in space and then you take it away and you put it in space and you take it away and you put it in space and you take it away. What's going to happen? Well, you know, it's not going to be very pleasant for the occupants of your space. They're going to get jerked around, right? It's back and forth and back and forth. And that's sort of a more dramatic version of what happens when two black holes orbit each other is they're creating ripples in this gravitational field. And you feel those as stretching and squeezing of space itself. And we measure that here on Earth by having really long rods, essentially, and watching them shrink and expand, shrink and expand. Would those, they would be like lasers that you would use to measure that? 
Yeah, the practical way you measure a very small change in the length of a long rod is that you don't actually build a physical rod. That was the first thing they tried. They actually did that here at UCI. Joe Weber did that. <laughs> and because like, he had no idea, like, maybe this is easy to spot, right? Let's just build a big block of metal and see if it shrinks and expands. Um, I was going to say, what was it made out of? <laughs> yeah, it was just a big uh, cylinder of metal. Um, but nowadays they're miles long and they're laser. They use lasers to measure the length between two isolated mirrors. And I think that the biggest misconception people have about space being bent by mass is that they're used to this rubber sheet analogy where you have like a big rubber sheet and you put a bowling ball in it and it bends space. And the bowling ball is supposed to represent the sun and the rubber sheet is supposed to represent space. And that's helpful up to a point because it gets you to think about space being bent instead of flat. But it's also, I think, confusing and the way it's confusing is that it's bending in some sort of third dimension, right? In that analogy, space, the universe is 2D, and you put some object in it, and it bends in some third dimension. But our space, it's 3D, first of all. When you put a mass in it, it doesn't bend in some fourth dimension. It's not like our space is embedded in some higher dimensional space, and then it gets bent in fourth dimension. It's an intrinsic bending, not an extrinsic. It's not like there's somebody out there with a true set of rulers in 4D space and they're noticing our space being bent. It's an intrinsic bending, which means it just changes the relationship between points in space, right? It says, okay, now that space, that bit of space is closer and this bit of space is further away. Wow. So I've never thought of it that way. So, so you're saying that the gravitational influence of a large object like a star is in some literal sense, shortening the distance between points of space as you get closer to it? Absolutely. You know, l massless particles like photons travel not in straight lines. They travel along geodesics, which means the shortest path through a curved space. Now, out in the middle of nowhere, there's no mass anywhere. That happens to be a straight line. That's why it seems like photons travel straight. But photons can also be bent by the sun. How does that happen? Photons have no mass, right? Well, the, the sun is changing the shape of space so that the shortest path from A to B is no longer what we would consider a straight line. It's a geodesic. It's the shortest path. And so general relativity and mass changes the relationship between space, between here and there. And um, that's what we, maybe you, you hear people talk about like the space-time metric that relates like how bits of space are connected. So this is sort of the, the biggest conceptual leap to make from the rubber sheet analogy to our actual 3D space, which is that it's an intrinsic bending. It's a relationship between points in space. And that's what a gravitational wave is doing also. It's a ripple in this metric as it passes through space. And it's saying, oh, these things are now closer together. Oh, now they're further apart. Like you can change the distance between two things without those things moving relative to each other, right? Because you change yeah. the relative distances. Well, it almost makes me think in terms of uh, how this is communicated to non-experts that it would maybe be better to not use terms like bending of space and maybe more like compressing or squeezing of space. Yeah, but space can also be expanded, right? Like what we're seeing right. in the universe right now is that space is expanding, which is crazy. It's like something out there is manufacturing new units of space all the time. It's filling the universe with new space. Like that's, that's the hardest thing for me to get my mind around. It's like where this new space is coming from and what it means to make new space. And are you making units of new space or is space continuous and smooth? And like, man, there are so many questions. Oh, well, I want to talk about that. Maybe we should take a quick break. And then when we come back, we can explore the expansion of space. Sounds good.
Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. 
And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, we're back. We're talking with uh, Daniel Whiteson about space, the nature of space. That's right. Uh, so before we went to the break, Daniel, you just introduced the idea of the expansion of space as we've, we've been talking about the properties of space as a, as a thing and not just uh, an emptiness. Uh, and so, of, co- of course, we know one of the things that space is doing is that it's expanding. Uh, I I think we all know now that the universe as a whole is expanding and maybe expanding at an accelerating rate. If I've got that right, you can comment on that in a second. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what exactly does it mean for space to expand? Because well, I think from an intuitive level, people might think, well, I don't notice space expanding. Like I don't notice – it doesn't seem like the space in between the molecules in my body is expanding. So, so is space in general expanding or is it just say the, the, the distance between galaxies is expanding? What form does that expansion take? Yeah, it's a great question. I love the intuition there. You know, the idea is like this thing is supposed to be happening everywhere in the universe. Can I sort of reconcile that with my experience? Can I see that happening around me? And, you know, like a few hundred years ago, that was a big conceptual leap to say, like, the rules of the universe should also be applied here. Um, so it, it's a great question. And, and the short answer is that space is expanding everywhere. Like every unit of space is the same. It's homogenous. As far as we understand, there's no difference to this chunk of space and a chunk of space out there in the deepest voids between galaxies. They're all the same from the point of view of the universe. And they're all expanding, which means they're all creating new space. But that's not the only thing happening, right? You are made of a mesh of atoms that are held together with pretty strong bonds. And this expansion of space is dramatic, but per unit of space, it's pretty small. Like there's not a whole lot of space being made between me and this microphone, for example. It adds up when you get to like cosmic scales between me and a galaxy because there's a lot of space between us. But here on the small scale, it's not very powerful. So the bonds in my body are strong enough to hold me together. The same thing can be said for, you know, the reason why you're staying on Earth. You know, Earth is holding you down because of its gravity. That's enough to overcome this expansion of space. And Earth is bound gravitationally to the sun for the same reason. The space between us and the sun is expanding, but the gravity of the sun holds us there. It's like if you were sliding away from somebody on an ice sheet, but they had a rope around you, and so they were keeping you at a fixed distance. Okay, so there are forces within our bodies holding our bodies together that are counteracting that expansive force. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm trying to imagine, what exact form does that take? So does that mean that the, the, say, the bonds between the molecules in our body holding them together actually prevent the space from expanding there so it doesn't expand? Or does the space somehow kind of roll out beyond us uh, without affecting our, you know, our bodies as it does so? You can't stop the expansion of space, but you can keep your constant distance. If those bonds were deleted, then all the atoms would sort of drift further and further apart. But instead, you have these bonds holding them together. And so it's more the, the, the answer is the latter, is that space sort of rolls out past you. Wow. So space is emanating from us at all times. 
Yeah, it's sort of like we're in a pool of space that's expanding larger and larger, and we're a smaller and smaller dot inside of it. So as a result, you know, the universe is get, getting more and more dilute, like the matter energy density of the universe decreases with time because there's no more stuff being created, but there is more space being created all the time. And so that's really like the the way to think about the whole expansion of the universe since the Big Bang is that the, the universe didn't start out small. It started out dense. It was like compressed and hot and nasty and wet. And then the Big Bang is just this rapid dilution of space into something much more sparse. And then that's just continued. The universe has just gotten more and more cold and dilute and spread out as new space is being created. And you have these little chunks of matter desperately clinging to each other to avoid being totally isolated. And and I think there's another part of your question, which I think is fascinating, is like, at what scale does that take over? Like, you hold yourself together. Yeah. The Earth holds on to you. The sun holds on to the Earth. The galaxy holds on to the sun and all the stars. And dark energy is probably not going to rip apart um, our galaxy. And even the neighboring galaxies, like Andromeda, is going to collide into us. And the gravity of these two galaxies are going to um, smash them together. And the group of galaxies is mostly gravitationally bound. And that's the biggest sort of gravitationally bound thing. Beyond that, things are not tightly connected enough by gravity to resist dark energy. And that's so it's these groups of galaxies that are getting pushed apart and getting further and further away because there's nothing really to resist the, the dark energy push. Okay, so the reason then that uh, you would normally see the expansion of the universe expressed in terms of like the separation of what galaxy clusters or what it would be that that's where gravity is no longer strong enough to to hold back against it. That's right. And it's not just the amount of distance, you know, causes the uh, causes all the expansion to add up there. That's right. It's it's both things. I mean, the the amount of distance makes it more dramatic and the distance makes gravity weaker. And so what you think, what happens if you sort of project the universe forward uh, billions or trillions of years is that these gravitationally bound clusters continue to contract and hold themselves together, but they get more and more distant from everything else. So the future is, is islands of stuff separated by even more vast distances of space. It's interesting. So all of this talk about space as a substance and having all these properties that we can measure and not just as a, you know, uh, the void or the distance between things is uh, somehow on on one level kind of makes a a lot of these like sci-fi plots where you manipulate space itself with technology seem more plausible. Robert, I think you had some questions about this maybe, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. This this got me thinking, um, you know, about the expansion, explosive expansion. Uh, Daniel, what do you make of the notion that faster than light travel could essentially be achieved by some manner of of warp bubble manipulation, moving the space containing the ship rather than the ship through space alone? Oh, I'm ready to invest in your warp drive company for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I read a lot of science fiction, and um, I love these ideas. And you know, there's a lot of baloney in science fiction where they just like Mm -hmm. slap quantum mechanics on a plot hole because they don't really know how to think about it. But I give people a lot of flexibility when it comes to space because we really don't know what it can do. And uh, so there's a lot of opportunities there for new ideas. And the one that you mentioned, I think, is is a great um, idea. And it's not just science fiction. I think it really could be that we could develop a warp drive that that gets us to distant stars. You know, there's one very hard and fast rule about the universe, which is you cannot move through space faster than the speed of light. Mm 
But you got to be a bit of a lawyer about it, right? You're going to be like, wait, hold on a second. You said move through space, right? That's fine. So you can't travel through a light year of space in less than a year. But what if you didn't want to move through space, right? What if you squeezed space itself, right? Or if you stretch space. And that's the basis of these warp drive ideas is to get around it by saying, I don't want to go all the way to Alpha Centauri. I want to squeeze the distance between here and Alpha Centauri. Or, or I want to create this warp bubble, which continuously is like squeezing the space in front of me so I can move really, really far. What, what, what would have been otherwise really far in a short amount of time. And, and that way you can get somewhere which would have taken light a long time to get there, but it only takes you a few moments because you've effectively shortened that distance. So I think that's totally plausible. Um, I think it's far, far beyond <laughs> our abilities. You know, it's sort of like, this moment when physicists pass things off to engineers, you know, like we're interested in, is it totally possible or totally impossible? Once we decide it's probably possible, then it's a practical question of like, how do you focus that much energy in order to accomplish that? How do you actually build something which does this? And that's a whole separate question. And, you know, there are even other crazier ideas for how to get far through space, which take advantage of this this new sort of modern conception of space. And that's like, don't even go through any space at all. General relativity tells us that you can be creative about assigning the distances between bits of space, right? It doesn't have to be you lay out a grid and everything that's next to each other has equal distances, right? Mass can change the relationship of points in space. And it's more than just like taking a sheet and stretching it and squeezing it to make gentle differences. You can have crazy rearrangements. You can connect bits of space which are not adjacent to each other. And that's what we call a wormhole. It's a connection between bits of space which, you know, have no reason otherwise to be next to each other. But it's like, I'm here in Orange County, you're in Atlanta. What if we just somehow said Orange County is next to Atlanta? And, you know, we just rearrange the connections. That's what a wormhole does. And shockingly, crazily, mind-bogglingly, that's not against the rules. Yeah, this makes me think of uh, the examples we saw in uh, uh, the, the Hyperion novels where you had, uh, you know, essentially warp gates that were allowing a river in one world to flow into a river in the other world, which, uh, you know, feels completely fantastic. But what you're saying, if you lawyer up appropriately, it's not completely uh, um, out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, it's not out of the realm of possibility at all. And it's the kind of thing which might never be practical. It might be that we're never able to build something which allows you to have a house where your bathroom is in one planet and your living room is another. I love that <laughs> book. Um, but it also might be totally possible and it might be seem impossible and then somebody has a breakthrough like, oh, it turns out it's a lot easier than we thought. And it used to cost um, the entire energy output of the human race for a year just to transmit a particle through a wormhole. Now we can do it for five cents, you know, and then the next year there's an app for it, right? That's sort of the my, the progression of technology. And, uh, you know, the way a wormhole would work is, is conceptually quite tricky still. You need to create a black hole. You need to open this wormhole up. You need to keep it open. It might require the creation of exotic matter and all sorts of stuff, but it's technically not impossible. And that's 
that excites me. Um, mostly because I'd love to visit these other star systems and walk on another planet, or at least have some humans walk on other planets and tell us about it. You know, um, it feels frustrating to be stuck in this tiny little island of our universe and not able to explore the neighborhood. And so, if warp drives and wormholes could be built, then I'm all for it. So, yeah, I'd love to invest in your company. <laughs> So uh, to come back to another question about the properties of space, I, I was thinking about um, – so we think of space as a kind of undifferentiated, uncountable mass of potentially occupied territory, kind of the way you, you used the analogy of water earlier, uh, the way we think about water. But, of course, in the modern world, we know that water is not actually continuous and uncountable. It's made up of H2O molecules. In theory, you could separate them out and count them. Is there any evidence that space works like that? Are there smallest indivisible units of space that could be counted? And does anybody have any ideas for how to look into this question? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. The short answer is that we think space should be pixelated. You know, we think that there should be a smallest meaningful unit of space. But the arguments are kind of fuzzy. And it goes something like this, you know, we look around in the universe and we see that everything at the smallest scale is quantized. Like you can have one electron, you can have two electrons. You can't have 1.61 electrons. Um, electrons in bound states have energy levels. You can be at energy level one or two. You can't be at 1.21 right? The universe seems to be quantized. Everything, uh, excitations of quantum fields, everything comes down to numbers, integers, not real numbers, but integers. And so we imagine that as we zoom in on space, smaller and smaller and smaller, that we should similarly see the smallest bit of space. It would sort of be counter a lot of, of what we imagine to be foundational to quantum mechanics if it wasn't, right? If you could always zoom into a smaller space. And so there's this idea that space could be made out of these basic units, these pixels. And you can think of it either as like space being pixels or space being sort of made out of this foam. Um, and, you know, that's not a very strong argument, but it, it's, it's consistent. You know, you find these general principles, you say, hey, the universe seems to work this way. And so it should work this way in all categories. It should, every part of it should follow these rules. Are there any ideas for types of experiments that could test for this right now, or is this just totally beyond our even guess of how to, how to look for right now? Well, it's hard to know because we don't know how big these pixels should be, right? We, let's think about scales, for example. Like we can look at really small things using particle colliders. For example, with the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, we can zoom in and see things that are about 10 to the minus 20 meters. That's pretty small. Um, but if we had to make a, a guess for how small these space pixels would be, we don't really have a lot of good reasons to guess. And what we do is we just sort of take all the numbers we have and we rearrange them until they give us something that have units of a meter. We're like, okay, take the speed of light, you know, that's meters per second, uh, multiplied by Planck's constant, all right, that has energy units. So keep throwing in um, fundamental constants to the universe until you get something that has units of meters. And you can do it and you get a number. And that number is about 10 to the minus 35 meters. And it's called the Planck length. And it sounds like a really deep insight. I mean, it's really nothing more clever than dimensional analysis. It's just saying, 
How can I get a unit of meter? It doesn't mean that that's the fundamental scale of the universe. It doesn't mean that space pixels are that size. But it's the only thing we can do. And often in science, we start with like, let's start with the dumbest idea, because that's all we can do. And then let's get more sophisticated. So if that's the case, and if space pixels are 10 to the minus 35 meters, that's really far from what we can see today, right? That's 15 orders of magnitude from what we can see. That's like if you can see whole solar systems, then one over one, one over 10 to the 15 would be like seeing a meter stick. So it's like saying I can barely detect solar systems in other galaxies. Okay, well, can you see a meter stick on the surface of a planet in another <laughs> galaxy? Well, no, I mean, we're not even close. So we're trillions of scale factors away from being able to see these things in particle collisions. Um, but there's a whole area of research uh, that's built up the other direction. Says, let's start from the bottom. Instead of starting from the top and like breaking up protons and electrons into smaller bits all the way down to the Planck scale, let's start from the bottom. Imagine that it's true. Can we sort of build up and come up with a theory of physics and then make a prediction, right? And that's this, this group of, of theories called loop quantum gravity. And it's really fascinating stuff. And it's, you know, they've, they, instead of trying to bring general relativity together with quantum field theory by saying, oh, let's turn gravity into a quantum field theory, they go the other direction. They say, let's take space and make it into quantized units. Let's chop it up into little bits and imagine that they're quantized. So then as space is expanding, you're like popping off new little bits of space, which is sort of conceptually hard to imagine. But your question really was like, have we figured that out? Could we possibly see it? And so far, that whole field is sort of in its infancy. You know, it's decades old. They only realized, a, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago it was even possible and how to do basic calculations and how to just get simple stuff right. Um, but the short answer is we could answer all these questions. We could resolve all these mysteries if we could see inside a black hole. You don't happen to have a black hole, do you? <laughs> <laughs> uh that, that's sort of impossible, right? Like you're, you're not getting information out of a black hole. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And that's the frustrating thing is that like gravity is very, very weak. It's a very weak force. It takes um, a lot for gravity to do anything very powerful. But inside a black hole, you're having tremendous gravity, so much gravity that it could reveal things like, you know, the creation of new bits of space or the distortion of space, or it could show us like what's um, what's the matter distribution like inside a black hole? Because general relativity says that there's a singularity, that there's all this mass concentrated in a single dot, a zero volume. But if space is pixelated, if loop quantum gravity is right, then you can't have a tiny infinitesimal dot. You have, need to have a basic unit of space. So if we could see what was going on inside a black hole, we could see what happens when gravity tries to compress things down to these tiny units of space. But you're right. All the secrets of the universe exist inside black holes, but they are unobservable. We'll never get that information out, which is so frustrating. It's like if, you know, the Oracle says, here are all the answers and I'm going to put them in a box, which if you try to open it, destroys all the answers. It's like some cruel Greek fable <laughs> yeah. or something, you know? Yeah, also a really safe place to hide the secrets of the universe, right? <laughs> That's right. And all your passwords. I keep all my passwords in a black hole just in case. <laughs> So the short answer is we're, we're not anywhere close to discovering the basic pixels of space. But I think if you polled physicists, 95% of them would say that space is probably pixelated. So I'm sorry if I if you already alluded to this and I missed it, but um, 
So would you say looking for pixelated space, the smallest units of space, is something that could potentially be done by experimental methods available to us if we had, you know, the ultimate particle collider energy levels, you know, you couldn't uh, that are nowhere near what we have today? Or is it just like not within reach of any reasonable experimental paradigm that we know about? No, that's a great question. Um, and one of the amazing things about particle colliders is that there really is no limit to what they can do. It's really just a money question. Like the more money you give us, the bigger the particle collider we can build, the faster we can shoot those particles around. And speed is sort of inverse to distance, right? The faster your particles are going, the smaller the distance they can probe. And so there's really no limit. If we built a Milky Way size particle collider, then yes, we could answer these questions and uh, you know, <laughs> we could find space pixels and we could you know, see quantum effects at this level. Um, but, you know, that would cost a, I don't even know if there's a number for the amount of money. It would certainly be <laughs> bigger than this recent stimulus by a lot. <laughs> so you're saying it, it would not be like, uh, you know, something five to ten times bigger than the Large Hadron Collider. It would need to be like galaxy sized or something. Yeah, it'd have to be like 10 to the 15 times larger <laughs> than the Large Hadron Collider. And that would okay. be like, I don't even know what the acronym would be like. You can't just call it a Large Hadron Collider. You need like a very, 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 very large Hadron Collider. V to the 15 LHC or something. <laughs> Nobody's even asking for that money. But yeah, there's no limit to to sort of how small we can peer down if we have um, really powerful colliders. And we know the technology, right? We, like, um, we just add more little boosters to make the particles go faster. Um, but, you know, we also are working on other kinds of technologies to make these colliders more powerful without having to make them ridiculously big and expensive. Um, because currently we're limited by sort of how fast we can make these particles move because it takes this, these little units to like give them a kick and then magnets to bend them. But if we can make those accelerators, the little units of accelerators better and faster and, and more compact, then we could build like tabletop accelerators. There are people here at UC Irvine working on these plasma wakefield devices to try to get particles accelerated to really high energies and very short distances. Um, and then it might be possible to, you know, peel back a layer of reality and see what's going on underneath uh, without spending 10 to the 15 trillion dollars. Uh, so we've been looking a lot at uh, the, the very smallest properties of space. I, I say we zoom out to the biggest possible uh, way of looking at space and talk mm. about the shape of the universe we live in as a whole. Um, so, yeah. so you've, uh, I was reading an article that you and Jorge wrote about this. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the shape of the universe? Yeah, the shape of the universe is a wonderful question. It's sort of hard to imagine because I think people, again, think about the shape of the universe. They think about like a big blob. And they're wondering, like, what is the shape of that blob? Is it, you know, look like a pile of dog poop or like a bagel or like a donut or whatever? But when we talk about the shape of the universe, again, we're talking about something intrinsic, right? We're talking about how do the pieces of the universe relate to each other? Because we don't imagine that the universe is like sitting in some larger space. We're not asking, like, if you were outside the universe and looking at it, which shape would it have? We're really talking about how does the universe curve? You know, like when you put mass in a solar system, it bends space so that planets move in according to these geodesics, which happen to be orbits. So we're really talking about the large scale, like bending of the universe. And, you know, as you put stuff in the universe, planets, stars, whatever, the universe bends in such a way so that it would 
tend to collapse, right? Ten, things we tend to sort of roll towards each other, move towards each other. So that gives space one curvature. But what we've done is we've we've gone out, we've measured the curvature of space. We've we've asked like how much stuff is there in space, and how do these things balance each other? Because it turns out there's a there's one way to 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 bend the universe, and that's by having mass. And there are other ways to bend the universe the other direction. These things called dark energy, which are contributing to the expansion of space, actually has the opposite effect on this curvature. So mass bends it one way, dark energy bends it the other way, and together the two things give you perfectly flat space. So you have these two titanic forces which are balancing each other and giving you space which is completely flat, meaning that on average there is no curvature to the universe, that, that, uh, you know, that things should move in straight lines. So I've read the curvature of the universe described uh, alternately as flat and as almost flat. Could you help me sort sort out the difference there? Is one of those just wrong or, or uh, what's going on? Well, it's a measurement, right? And we're mm-hmm. measuring the curvature of the universe. And roughly how we do it is we add up all these pieces and we ask, you know, what do they come out to? But they all have uncertainties. You know, we don't know precisely how much stuff there is in the universe. We don't know exactly how strong dark energy is. And we get better and better measurements every year. And those measurements are consistent with totally flat, right? With adding up to being exactly flat. But there's uncertainty there. And some measurements suggest a tiny deviation from flat. And some measurements are consistent with flat and other things. And so there's some wiggle room there. And as, and we try to measure it in lots of different ways because we don't just trust one experiment or one experimenter. And so we try to probe these things from different directions. And sometimes they slightly disagree. So there can be some sort of momentary controversy there. But, you know, I think the larger question is like, why are we flat at all? You know, it seems sort of weird once you discover that space can be curved to discover that our universe just sort of happens to be flat. So you say it just sort of happens to be flat. Does that indicate that you think the flatness of the universe, in your expert opinion, is basically a coincidence? Or do you think that uh, that it's not a coincidence, that it's a downstream effect of, of something we don't understand or some other variable? It depends, right? Like, um, before we had this theory for how the universe began, it seemed really weird to have a flat universe. It seemed really strange for space to be so smooth and to not have curvature. Because as you, as you put stuff in the universe, it should sort of gather together, right? That's gravity. And it should make it more and more curved. And so it's it's weird to start with a universe that's pretty flat and then end up with a universe that's pretty flat. Like, it doesn't seem stable. It seems like if you have any deviation from flatness that deviation would build on itself and build on itself and build on itself. And eventually you'd be pretty far from flat. So then our universe is pretty old. It's 14 billion years old. This has been going on for a long time. Why are we still flat? And so for a long time, that was, that was seemed like a coincidence. Like either we were so close to flat in the first few seconds that we've hardly deviated at all. Like we're like balanced on the knife's edge and we're still balanced 14 billion years later, which seems unlikely. Or there's some reason for it. And the explanation that we've come up with recently is this idea of inflation, that the universe was stretched super quickly in the first few moments of the universe that made it essentially hyper, hyper flat. It's like if you're standing on a tennis ball, you look around and you can tell that the universe is a little bit curved, right? Because a tennis ball has a lot of curvature to it. But if that tennis ball suddenly gets inflated to the size of a planet, when you look around, you can't tell that the Earth is not flat, right? It seems to be flat. 
And so that's what happened, we think, in the first few moments of the universe that explains how the universe got so flat uh, in the beginning. So if if this is what it is like in a flat universe, I mean, is there any way to, to even discuss like what it would be like within a round universe or a square universe <laughs> or anything other than a, a flat or almost flat universe? Yeah, well, it has really fascinating implications for like the possible sizes of the universe, right? If the universe is flat, then it can go on forever, right? You can just keep going forever because it can be flat, like an infinite sheet, right? But in three dimensions. Mm -hmm. If the universe is curved, like if the universe is the surface of a sphere, right, in some higher dimensional space, then it it might not be infinite, right? It might be that you move and you keep curving and eventually you come back to where you were. And so it could be infinite, but not necessarily have any edges, right? Because like on the surface of the sphere or on the surface of the earth, you walk uh, for long enough, you come back to where you started. You don't like run into the edge of the earth. So the shape, this curvature of the universe has a lot of consequences for the potential size of the universe. And so if it was curved, it wouldn't necessarily be infinite. Um, if it's flat, that suggests it could be infinite, but it also might not be, right? There's ways to connect the universe. It can be flat, but also still be like weirdly connected, uh, like an asteroids game. So that you come off one side and you end up on the other side. Because remember, space can have these complicated, non-trivial connections between parts of it. The whole edge of the universe could be basically a set of wormholes that bring you back to the other side. All right, we're going to take one more break, but we'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. All right, we're back. So I've got a question about the Big Bang then with respect to the uh, the expansion of the universe. We often hear, of course, the Big Bang was that the universe was once in this hot, dense state. And then there's this expansion. You you think we go through this period of inflation. That seems to be the consensus now. Mm-hmm. And then we, we keep expanding and cooling. But what form does that expansion take with respect to space? Does that mean that the universe or the contents of the universe expanded into pre-existing space or that space itself expanded? Space itself expanded. The way I think about it is not like a small blob of stuff that then blew up and moved through space, but instead an infinite universe created with infinite stuff in it. And then the Big Bang happened simultaneously everywhere all at once, meaning that all that stuff just got diluted, like new space was being created everywhere. Space was expanding. And it's not like it was stretching stuff into what was previously empty space. It was just creating new space everywhere between all the bits. So what used to be hot and dense and intense is now more dilute. And so I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that the Big Bang started off like the whole universe the size of an atom. And then it's just a big explosion where stuff moves through space. But instead, I think it's much more natural to think about the universe created um, infinite amount of stuff created all at once and then diluted and then expanded. So that's like requires you to imagine an infinite creation of stuff and then an infinite Big Bang on top of it, which is sort of mind blowing and also sort of more natural. I I really like that explanation because I feel like it places us, it places the the, the individual thinker within the model instead of placing us, trying to place us with with outside of the model, uh, which which skews this this attempt to understand like what space is, Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. And and then you don't have to ask questions like, well, where was the Big Bang? Was it over there? Was it over there? Are we close to the center? And when we look around us, we see everything is moving away from us. And there's no directionality to it, like things over here moving away from us, things over there moving away from us. And that's true everywhere in the universe, which means that there is no center. 
There's no place from which this explosion happened. It happened everywhere all at once. And that's what differentiates sort of things moving through space from the expansion of space itself. This makes me wonder if kind of like uh, the idea of bending in general relativity, if we're suffering from the connotations of the word we happen to use, the idea of expanding usually indicates like the pushing of boundaries into areas that were previously out of bounds. Like if you expand a map, you know, you're pushing the edges out. But that doesn't really make sense in this case. We're talking about the expansion of space, so it would almost make more sense to think about the Big Bang maybe as a um, a uh, a population of, or I don't know, a population of space expanding and infilling of space. Yeah, I think of it like uh, take an infinite ruler, right, and mark off two dots, and then somebody stretches it, right? Well, it was infinite before, it's infinite now, but there's more of it, right? And so space is really this like, it's 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 more of a stretching, you know, than an expansion. It's not an explosion. It's more of like a, yeah, it's like a stretching. There has to be a social distancing metaphor in all of this. <laughs> I keep I keep kind of grasping for it. Well, I'm certainly expanding inside my pants. And I notice that they're all they're all, <laughs> they're all denser these days than than before this quarantine. But I think that's something that's hard to grapple with is this creation of an infinite universe or an infinite amount of space. And uh, people write us questions in our podcast all the time. And one of the most common questions is, what is the universe expanding into, right? And I think that comes from this conception of the Big Bang as a small dot, which is then exploding, right? Or even if you imagine space as a chunk of stuff and you understand the space itself is expanding, you wonder what is it expanding into? And I think that's this desperation to sort of place the universe in a context is to say, all right, we started off by drawing axis lines and describing all the stuff happening in the universe in this sort of construct we imagined called space, which was maybe philosophical or just a thought idea. Then it turns out it's real. Well, we'd like to place then that space in some sort of super space or meta space to sort of grapple with it. It's difficult even for me or for cosmologists, I think, to still you know, grapple with this concept of space not being in anything else not necessarily sitting in a super space or a meta space on which you can define these axes. It just sort of is inherent. So I'm sure you've gotten this question before, but I think it always helps to to try as best we can to imagine it on our own level. So imagine you have a, a spaceship, you know, that can go faster than light, as fast as you possibly want it to go. There's no limit to it. And you just travel in the same direction forever. Well, what do you imagine happens then? Well, I think you would really never get anywhere. I mean, you leave the galaxy, and then you leave the local group of galaxies, and then you're flying off towards another group of galaxies. But that group of galaxies is moving away from us faster than the speed of light. Right now, it's not, again, physics lawyer talk, it's not moving through space faster than the speed of light. New space is being created between us and those galaxies faster than we could move through it, faster than even a photon could fly through it. So those galaxies, if you just sat here on Earth, those galaxies are disappearing from our view. Eventually, the photons being created by them will no longer get to us. It's like if Usain Bolt was running at you, but somebody was laying track in front of him faster than he was running. It doesn't matter how fast he is, right? If they're laying track faster, he's never going to beat them. So in that same way, those photons will never get to us, and we will never get to those galaxies, which means that the night sky is getting darker and darker, right? Things are literally falling off the edge of the observable universe. 
and things are disappearing from our view. You know, in 50 billion years or in 100 billion years, it may be that there are no galaxies visible in the sky. Imagine human civilization survives that long, or maybe we have some apocalypse and we rebuild and we start building human knowledge again. Then there is no Edwin Hubble moment when you look out in the sky and discover distant galaxies and realize, oh, we're not alone and the universe is expanding. They would never know that. There'd be no way for them to learn that. And that to me is so tantalizing and frustrating to know that that knowledge could be hidden because I project the other way. I'm like, all right, well, we're 14 billion years into the universe. What has already disappeared from the night sky, which we will never recover? What clues, what incredible context are we missing about the night sky that, you know, astronomers 13 billion years ago would laugh at us for not understanding? We don't know, and we probably never will, and that drives me crazy. So this is our shot. We don't have time to re-evolve from bacteria and do it again. <laughs> That's right. That's right. If we haven't missed our shot already, we should scrape the bottom of the barrel and understand what's going on out there in the universe. You know, uh, we wrote a whole book about it. It's called We Have No Idea. And, and the point of that book is that we don't even really know what the denominator is on our ignorance. Like, what fraction of the universe do we have understood? You know, given the fact that we only in the last 30 years figured out that space is a thing and it's expanding and can do all this weird stuff and the universe is growing and growing, that so many of our basic questions about the universe have different answers than we imagined. And we're discovering new basic questions like what is space? What is time? How many dimensions are there to space, which we didn't even get into? Um, It tells me that there's a lot of stuff that we don't even know to ask yet. And I just hope we figure out what the questions are before we run out of time to answer them. So I've got a question going in another direction. This might not make any sense. Feel free to uh, decline it if it doesn't. But I was wondering, does it make sense to think that the fundamental properties of physics are actually properties of space, you know, or of local space as we know it? I'm thinking about, for example, you know, I don't know, relative strength of fundamental forces or the mass of the proton or something does the nature of space have anything to do with these constants or the laws of physics? And are they in some way contingent upon what kind of space we live in? Oh, my God. Absolutely. That's not a crazy idea. I mean, it is a crazy idea, but it's also real. Like the universe is a crazy idea. So um, the, the, a lot of the things that we consider to be fundamental about the universe are actually just properties of space and the way that space around here, at least, seems to behave. For example... We know that particles, the reason particles have mass, tiny little particles like electrons have mass, is not because they have little stuff to them. It's because they interact with this new field we discovered, the Higgs field. And it's in interacting with those fields that they get inertia. The reason a little electron, when you push it, it um, takes some force to get it to move is because it has some inertia. And the inertia comes from the Higgs field. But where does the Higgs field come from? Well, the Higgs field, as we talked about before, is one of these quantum fields. It's part of space. And it's got some tension built into it. Like when the universe cooled in the very first few moments, there was a lot of energy and the universe sort of cooled down, cooled down. But the Higgs field got stuck. It didn't go all the way down to zero. It got like stuck on a little shelf. And it's very happy there for now. But if the Higgs field got like (laughs) kicked off that shelf 
and relax down to a lower level, then the electron would have less mass or zero mass. The proton, would, the quarks would have less mass or zero mass. All the fundamental particles could have different masses. And that includes the force-carrying particles like the W and the Z boson, which affect the strength of the forces. So like the reason the weak force is so weak is because the W and Z boson that carry it are so heavy because the Higgs field is stuck where it is. So everything is hanging on the Higgs field being stuck on this shelf. And if it gets down to a different shelf or falls off completely, space is totally different. I mean, it still follows laws of physics, but the laws of physics we've discovered are sort of emergent properties of all of these assumptions. And if those changed, everything would be different and space would be almost unrecognizable. So yeah, crazy, but also true. And it's possible that that could happen. You know, we don't know what it takes to trigger the Higgs field to sort of collapse to what we call its true vacuum. Some people worry that, for example, collisions of particles at high energies like are being done by some people in Switzerland, you know, not now actually <laughs> during this uh, pandemic, but the, the, those kind of situations could create um, vacuum bubbles of the Higgs field and those vacuum bubbles would expand at the speed of light and pass through all of space. And so we could end up collapsing the Higgs vacuum and changing the, the way space works. And you would still have physics. You would just have very, very different physics that we would, you know, we wouldn't be around to explore it, but somebody would have a lot of fun figuring out what the rules of that space are. <laughs> I think there's, there's another fascinating aspect of space, which is sort of hard to grapple with, which is sort of the relationship between space and stuff. Like we think about stuff as in space. It's like moving through space. Space is like there for you to be in, like the way a car is on a road, right? But if you are serious about space having quantum fields in it, and all particles are just excitations of those quantum fields, then stuff is really just a property of space, right? Like if space is just like a, a big quantum field, then, you know, imagine your road is like a big rubber band and a car on the road is like, okay, this part of the rubber band is bouncing. It has, it's excited. And then as the car moves down the road, it's not like you move that car. Instead, that energy gets transported to a new part of space, which then has the bounces. So it's like every time you move from one piece of space to another, it's like Star Trek teleporter. It's not actually the same particles, right? It's like the information is being transmitted so you can excite that new bit of space in the same way. But is it really still you? You know, it's all ship of Theseus stuff. <laughs> and so oh, wow. when I slide from over here to over here, what's, the space isn't changing. It's just like different parts of space are getting excited. And so in that way, we are all sort of part of space. We're not in it. We are part of it. This almost seems like a, a sort of deeper uh, reformulation of the ether idea, right? Like that they used to think that there needed to be a, uh, a substance in space that uh, electromagnetic radiation would propagate through. And then that was considered obsolete. But maybe is space itself, in a way, that substance that everything propagates through? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we're discovering all sorts of new forms of ether, right? Dark energy and the cosmological constant and the Higgs field. And like, there are these things that, that fill the universe with stuff, with, with something, with some physical dynamical object. And so you're right, it used to be ridiculous to imagine that space was filled with something. And now it turns out space is everything, right? Cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is. It is very cool. All right, so we talked about several other properties of space, but one uh, that we're wondering about now is how many ways does it go? 
you know, so he, he got a uh, got up and down, left, right, back and forth. Uh, and we know that uh, now we generally think of time as another dimension of space, space time, that they're they're sort of combined there. But does it stop there or is it reasonable to think about additional directions that you could go in that are not even conceivable to us in our, you know, macroscopic movements? I think what physics has taught us over the last hundred years is that every crazy idea is reasonable to think about for a few moments. And some of them will turn out to be true. And this is one of my favorite questions is like, how many dimensions are there to space? And I think you can start from just like, well, why would there be three? You know, like three is a weird number. You know, it's uh, whenever you find something about the universe and it has a number, you got to ask like, why that number? And if you ask like mathematicians, what like deep numbers do you expect to see in a description of the universe? You know, they'll say one or pi or E, but nobody says three, right? Unless they're Catholic <laughs> and think that the Trinity has real insight into the <laughs> fundamental nature of reality. And hey, you know, maybe they're right. But that's like clue number one. It's like, is there something three-ish about the universe? Like, that's kind of weird, but it, maybe it is. But it turns out that there's no reason to think that the universe couldn't have more dimensions and, you know, what that would mean is like another way to move. Like you write your position in space as, you know, X, Y, Z, right? You would just have another coordinate system. And the first thought you might have is like, well, where would it go, right? Like, where do you put it? You can't, like, X, Y, Z seems to describe everything. Where would it be? And you have to, it's really hard to think at higher dimensions. So you have to do this trick where you think in 2D and extrapolate to 3D because your mind can handle both of them. And then try to use that 3D, that extrapolation to go from 3 to 4, right? So when you think about 2D, you're like on the surface of a piece of paper. 3D, you're like a cube. So imagine moving that piece of paper through three-dimensional space and thinking about what that would be like as you like interact with the 3D object. So a sphere passing through a, a piece of paper would look like a dot that grows to a circle and then shrinks again to a dot and disappears, so in that same way, you can imagine 4D objects in 3D space. And so you use that sort of mental exercise to imagine like what these other dimensions could be like. And, but it turns out that, that the current theories of physics don't imagine these other dimensions being like these first three. There wouldn't be infinite dimensions that you could go. Like there's no limit to how far you can go in X or Y or Z. But these other dimensions, if they were infinite, we probably would have noticed them already. So if they exist, they would be compactified. They would be like rolled up. Like instead of being infinite, they would be curved like we talked about before. And they might just be like a centimeter wide. And, you know, what that means is like, okay, you have X, Y, Z, and then you have another number which varies between, you know, zero and one centimeter. And it's actually quite a natural idea. If it's true, it would explain a lot of mysteries of the universe. Like in the, in the 90s, I remember when this happened, people came up with this idea that we might have um, extra dimensions of space of time to explain why gravity is so weak. Like, you know that we have these basic forces of the universe, the electromagnetic force, the weak force, the strong force, they're all pretty powerful compared to gravity. Gravity is like 10 to the 30 times weaker in comparison. And that's weird. Why can we jump at all? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's weird, right? Like, if you hold a little magnet above the Earth, you have the entire gravitational force of the Earth, right, is being outpowered by a tiny little fridge magnet, right? It's pretty impressive. Um, so we wonder, like, why is gravity so weak? And then we thought, well, maybe gravity isn't actually so weak. It's just that most of gravity is sort of leaking out into these other dimensions, because the strength of gravity depends on how many dimensions there are. Like, 
you know, as space grows, as you get further away from something, the sort of same amount of gravitational power spreads out through that dimensional space. So space was four or five or six dimensional, gravity would be weaker, right? And so they, they imagine that maybe space does have more dimensions and that gravity is actually really strong and these dimensions are really, really short and anywhere past like a centimeter distant, what you're feeling is gravity being weakened because it's spread out in these other dimensions, so that was the idea. It's sort of a cool insight. I love when you have like an idea that requires you to revolutionize the way you think about the universe and solves an existing puzzle. Um, that was the idea. And it was especially tantalizing because they realized nobody had checked. Like, what is the gravitational force between two things that are just a centimeter apart? And they realized, oh my gosh, nobody's actually done that experiment. We didn't even know. And the reason is that it's hard. Like, what's the gravitational force between two marbles? almost nothing. So it takes like real experimental bravado to set up uh, the test, to test gravity at really, really short distances. And so they did that. And they've done a bunch of these cool experiments at the University of Washington, testing really, really isolated situations. And they found that gravity doesn't seem to get any stronger as you bring things really, really close together. And then we tried to discover these extra dimensions at the particle colliders, of course, because we use particle colliders for everything, you know, test the fundamental theories of the universe and new, new dimensions and, you know, clean your laundry and all sorts of stuff. And um, the idea is that if gravity gets really strong when things get closed up, then maybe when protons get smashed together, you could create little mini black holes. Because if gravity is really powerful at short distances, then even the really low mass stuff like protons might have enough energy to create black holes. And that's what, you know, there's a whole hullabaloo about whether or not the particle collider was going to destroy the world. Um, and that's one reason why people thought maybe it could happen is that we might create these black holes, which would prove that there are extra dimensions and explain why gravity is so weak. And then also, you know, eat the earth and end the human race. But it turns out that uh, we haven't seen any of those black holes. And also, we're pretty confident that uh, that we're not going to be creating the dangerous black holes at CERN because there are other collisions that happen all the time, very high energy f collisions from space that create the same configurations and haven't yet created a black hole to eat the Earth. So we thought that was safe, but we didn't see these black holes, which would have proven to us that there were extra dimensions. And so currently, we don't know if there are other dimensions to space. Like, we think there might be. It still could be possible. They would just have to be smaller than about a millimeter. Um, but we haven't seen them, and we don't have any evidence that they exist. But there are some theories that like them, like string theory would love if there were 11 or 26 dimensions. But at this point, we sort of haven't seen them until we build that, you know, trillion-dollar galaxy-sized particle collider. Well, it looks like we're running out of time here. Uh, Daniel, you, you're, uh, you and Jorge are still actively putting out episodes uh, of the podcast. Can you give us uh, just a, a brief idea of like what is out right now and what's coming out in the immediate future? Yeah, we're putting out episodes of Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe twice a week. Recent topics include like, could dark matter be made out of quarks? Or what's the cosmological constant? Or we've been doing a really fun series on analyzing the science of science fiction universes where we interview famous oh, science fiction authors and ask them nitpicky physics questions about their wormholes and their warp drives. So we're having a lot of fun. And we answer a lot of listener emails. We had a whole episode recently where we just went through listener questions and answered all of their questions from seven-year-olds to 77-year-olds. 
I was sorry. I just had a glance at the. I was glancing at the episode list to see if I um, was particularly familiar with any of the authors uh, that you've, you've talked to thus far. Oh, are y- y'all doing but, uh, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson by by chance? Uh, no, we haven't yet. But we've talked to Blake okay. Crouch. We talked to Hugo Award winning authors like Anne Leckie and Mary Robinette mm. Cole and Becky Chambers. Um, it's been really fascinating to see like how do you build a science fiction universe? At what point do you stop worrying about getting the science right and just think about the story? And then also for me since I'm such a science fiction buff, I just get to fanboy a little bit and talk to all these famous people. Oh, this might be too loaded of a question, uh, but if you could interview a now deceased science fiction author and ask them some of these same questions, which one would you choose? (laughs) You know, until I learned that he was also a jerk, I would have loved to interview Isaac Asimov because he created not just, you know, new technology fiction, but like his foundation series where he creates like actually a new field of science, you know, this prediction of the future. Um, I thought that was really fascinating. I would love to just understand the, the development of that idea and how he built the story around it. Uh, but then it turns out like many greats from the past, he was also a jerk to uh, lots of people he worked with. All right. Well, uh, well, thanks again for, for coming on the show and chatting with us. And yeah, we encourage all our listeners to check out those episodes and, uh, you know, and, and hang with us. Thanks for, for calling in from your closet to talk with us as we call in from our closets. Don't expand out of reach before uh, the next time we get to have you on. <laughs> I hope I'll still fit in my pants by the next time I talk to you guys. Thanks very much for having me on. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That'll shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this show. But ultimately, you can find our podcast wherever you get your podcast. And wherever that happens to be, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.